Hartman the Anarchist, or The Doom of the Great City, by E. Douglas Fawcett, illustrated by Fred T. Jane, published 1893. Chapter 13. In the Streets of the Burning City Thus far I had fared unexpectedly well. By the luckiest of chances I had alighted without having been observed, and this was more remarkable seeing that the park swarmed with noisy multitudes which I could not have sighted from the trap hole. Not thirty yards from my standing place some brawl or outrage was in progress, and deep curses of men mingled with the shrieks and appeals of women told me that it was no mild one. As I neared the Bayswater Road, I came upon crowds of fugitives from the fire, and the almost equally cruel mob, now master of the streets. Delicate ladies and children, invalids shivering, shivering in their wraps, aristocrats, plutocrats, and tradespeople were huddled into groups of the oddest imaginable composition. Many of the men carried weapons, and it was well for them and their convoys when they did so, for bands of ruffians were prowling around robbing, insulting, and murdering at random. One savage brute rushed at me, but a seasonable click of my revolver sufficed to sober him. All this time I was being devoured by anxiety. The terrible license here boded no good for Carshalton Terrace, always supposing the Northertons had received no benefit from the guarded hints given to Miss Hartman. Bearing in mind my interview with the old lady, I had grave cause to fear that these hints had been far too vaguely worded, in which case nothing was more likely than they had been ignored. Who, unless clearly warned, would have looked for a revolution so sudden and mysterious as this? Hartman had wished to spare his mother new revelations during his short visit, but he had, of course, wished also to warn her of these impending horrors. He might well have fallen between two stools and robbed of his, his well-meant of caution of the emphasis and impressiveness it called for. The upshot of the night proved that my fears were only too well-founded. A bright light shot downwards from the sky on a patch of buildings which were immediately lapped into flames. I understood. The drama was running into its third act. The Attila, then soaring some two miles away over Kensington, has exchanged the role of the dynamitard for that of an aerial petroleuse. A more frightful conception had surely never entered the mind of man. All the more reason for despatch in case things had gone wrong at the terrace. Hurriedly fighting my way out of the park, I joined the tumultuous yelling mob that flowed like a river in freshet along the Basewater Road in the direction of Notting Hill. But what a gauntlet I had to run! The mansions lying the thoroughfare were being looted by the dozen, and their inmates shamefully maltreated or butchered, while in many places the hand of the incendiary was crowning the work of destruction. It was opposite these last-mentioned places that the struggles of the mob were most arduous. After a house had been alight for some time, the passage past it necessarily became dangerous, but owing to the steady pressure of the mass of people from behind, no one once entangled in the mob could hope to avoid it. Numberless deaths occurred by the mere forcing of the fringe of crowd on to the red-hot pavements, and in the yellow and ruddy mouths of the outleaping jets of flames, and these deaths were terrible sights to witness. For myself I had seen from the first that the press could, do no, could no more be stemmed by me than the rapids can be stemmed by a cork. One could get into the stream easily enough, but getting free of it was quite out of the question. It was a case of navigating between Cilia and Charybdis. On one side I saw men and women crushed, trampled on, and suffocated against the railings. On the other I saw scores forced into the flames which their own comrades had kindled. The safest place was in the current that was now sweeping me along, a current which ran some three feet off the pavement on the left, a place fairly out of reach of the flames and blasts of heat from the houses on the opposite side. By dint of great efforts I managed to keep in this, through strong cr though strong cross-currents threatened my safety, and at last, sorely bruised and battered, with face scarlet with a scorching heat, found myself opposite the Queen's Road. Here I seized my opportunity and, working clear of the stream, dodged in among the a thinner crowd, worried but still intent on my purpose. 
As I rushed in and out of the groups and files of self-absorbed people, I became aware that I should speedily be left almost alone. Thinner and thinner grew the groups, and the reason was easy to discover. Right ahead of me, from the Queens Road Station downward to Westbourne Grove, the streets on both sides were being fired by bands of red-capped ruffians, followed by armed companies of marauders with their vilest passions unchained. Not a soldier, volunteer, or policeman was visible. The whole organization of society seemed to have fallen through. Ever and anon, sharp revolver cracks and rifle reports testified to hideous scenes in these houses, and women chased by flames, or even more cruel men, could be seen to rush shrieking into the street. I knew how severe a gauntlet had to be run, but clutching my revolver made a dash along the center of the roadway. As I passed a shop vomiting clouds of smoke and sparks, a miserable woman rushed out and clung to my knees in a frenzy, entreating me for the love of heaven to save her. Even as she clung to me, two of the redcaps dashed after in hot pursuit, but I lost no energy in parley. In less time than it takes to write of it, I shot them down, and leaving them bleeding and dying, dragged my charge into the center of the roadway. I can't stay, I shouted. Work your way up the street into the crowd going to Shepherd's Bush. It's far safer there. Then without waiting for a word, I plunged once more down the street, between the fiery houses glowing like coal under forced drought, between the incendiaries, the butchers, and looters, over smoking stone heaps and rafters, till, with singed clothes and almost stifled with smoke, I found myself in Westbourne Grove. Here I saw a terrified horse lying between the poles of a splintered cart. I was going to shoot him out of mercy when the thought struck me that I, he might be useful. Hastily loosening the harness, I assisted the poor beast to rise, and leaping on his back, galloped down the grove road. The windfall was indeed propitious. Within ten minutes, I found myself on the pavement by Carshalton Terrace, where, tethering my steed to the area railings, I leapt up the steps to the door. Thank goodness, the district was as yet unharmed. Furiously, I plied the knocker, beating the panels at the same time with my revolver butt. Then I heard the old Northerton shout angrily through the letter slot, Who's there? Stanley! Arthur Stanley! answered deliriously, and the door instantly opened. One warm shake of the hands. And your wife and Lena? My wife inside, but we are in a fever about the child. She has not returned, though she went out early this morning. Where? Where? I clamored excitedly. Do you know the streets are shambles? My God, yes. But where she has gone, we can't tell. Her maid heard her say that she went to see an old lady in Islington, but nothing. What? Islington? Are you sure of this? Yes, why? Because I know the place. Now cheer up. There's no call for panic. I'll start at once. No, I must run the gauntlet alone. Horse outside waiting. No good burdening him with two riders. Godspeed. I was out of the hall in a moment, and in another we had untethered and sprung upon the horse. A wave of the hand in Northerton, and the road began to rush away under me. Chapter 14. A Nocturnal Ride Of the details of this ride, I need hardly speak. Anxious to avoid the rioters, I steered my course by as northerly a curve as was practicable. The street lamps were, of course, unlighted, but the glow of innumerable fires reflected from every window, and beaten downwards by the crimson clouds overhead, was now turning night into day. As I galloped through the streets of Marylebone, I caught a glimpse of the Attila wheeling far away over what seemed to be Kensington. But of the few awkward incidents I can scarcely now remember one, my chief enemy indeed was a poignant anxiety about Lena. It must have been ten o'clock by the time I galloped into Islington, tired, hungry, and unkempt, but devoured by emotions which sternly forbade a halt. Five minutes brought me to the villa, and throwing the reins over the railing, I pushed the gate aside and entered. The door of the house was open, and the sound of voices came from within. Revolver in hand, I entered, but a glance dispelled my apprehensions. The little room, so familiar to me, was full of terrified women, with here and there a sturdy workman among them. At my entrance there was something like a panic, but I speedily reassured the company. Where are Miss Northington and the old lady? was my first question after soothing the tumult. A sister of charity came forward. Upstairs, do you bring any message? 
Miss Hartman, I must tell you, is dying. But Miss is, is safe and his attendance upon her. A wave of delight rolled through me. How selfish we all are. The news about Miss Harmon weighed as nothing with me for the minute. Can I send a message to the young lady? Is it very important? Very. Then I will take it myself. I scribbled a few words on a scrap of paper and handed it to the sister, who immediately left the room. I had not long to wait before she returned, saying that the lady would see me upstairs. I was shown up to the sick room, where Lena was sitting by the bedside. She greeted me with her guard chastened by the gravity of the occasion. After a moment's delay, I stepped up to the bed and looked at the patient. She had been unconscious, so they told me, for some time, and was now dying rapidly. A few hurried whispers told the story. Miss Hartman had gone to Westminster with Lena on the fatal morning of the previous day to witness the great labor demonstration, and the old lady had been brutally trampled in Parliament Street by the mob. Indeed, but for a company of volunteers who succeeded in momentarily beating back the rush, both ladies would have perished, said the sister. Miss Hartman, thus barely snatched from death, had felt well enough to struggle back to Islington with Lena, having, after an hour of weary waiting and at great expense, procured a cart and driver. Everything seemed on the high road to chaos, and the return was only accomplished after great risks had been run from the mob. Things looked better, however, when they managed to get out of the more central districts, and ultimately they reached the villa in safety, considerably surprised at the relatively quiet state of the neighborhood. Soon after entering the house, however, Miss Hartman was attacked by violent pains and nausea, and on the advent of a friendly doctor, it was found that she had sustained the most grave internal injuries. Hemorrhage set in later, and she rapidly became worse. Before becoming unconscious, she had dictated a letter for her son, Nobody knew that he was alive, added my informant, and had desired Lena to hand it to me for transmission. Very pathetic in character, it narrated the facts here recorded, and ended with a last appeal to him from a dying mother to better his dark and misguided life. Poor lady, she little knew who her son really was, and how he had himself unwittingly hurried her to the grave. Miss Hartman passed away about an hour later. Lena and I reverently kissed at the aged and venerable forehead, and paid the last tributes to our friend. Then, leaving the death chamber, I took Lena into a morning room and acquainted her with my extraordinary experiences since we had parted. She listened with the keenest interest and was appalled to think that Hartman, the anarchist assailant of London, could be the son of the poor harmless lady whose body lay so still in the adjoining chamber. Sometimes, indeed, she seemed quite unable to follow me and bent searching glances on me as if to make sure that I was not, after all, romancing. No doubt my tale fa sounded fantastic, but conceived the man who could romance on so pe peculiarly solemn an occasion. But did you not see the Arniff yourself? I asked. No, we were hopelessly jammed up in the crowd near Whitehall. The wildest rumors were afloat, fires were breaking out everywhere, cannon booming and the mob breaking into shops and stores. It was impossible to see far owing to the smoke. A bright trail of light flashed down the heavens to the southwest. Look, Lena, look, there's the Attila itself. Now will you believe me? The deluge of fire had not yet ceased to fall. We stood riveted with horror to the window. Do you see the searchlight glowing on her bow, the blazing petroleum splashing down from her sides to onto the housetops? Ah, there'll be a pretty story to tell of this in the morning. Lena could only gasp in answer. The Attila was, with her one electric eye, stood out sharply against the crimson-hued clouds, with trails of fire lengthening out behind her. And as the burning liquid fell, one could see the flames from the gutted houses leap upwards as if to greet it. Whole acres of buildings were ablaze, and one dared not think what that deluge must mean for the desperate mobs below, and no human art could avail here. In this extraordinary vessel, the vices and powers of man had been brought it to a common focus. The Attila seemed mad with the irresponsibility of strength, and yet to the captain of that fell craft, now suspended in midair over the doomed city, I had somehow to transmit the letter of his dead mother. The thought struck us both at once. What about that letter? 
said Lena as we watched the destructive gyrations of the Aranef. I took it from her hand reverentially. I shall do my best to deliver it. One of the crew, I remembered Schwartz's remark, is likely to descend shortly. Possibly I may meet him. If not, I must wait for my chance. Believe me, Lena, this letter, if I can ever deliver it, will prove most the most terrible retribution possible. And now we must be off. Your parents are seriously alarmed, and for their sakes you must ride back with me without delay. It was late in the morning when I snatched a broken rest at the Northertons, but in seeking my sofa, it was far too terrible a time to think of bed, I had at least the consolation that Lena was restored safe and sound to her father and mother, and last, and perhaps not least, to myself. It seemed, too, that we could detect some lull in the fury of the conflagration, though to what this was due we were unable, of course, to ascertain. Lull, however, no lull. Caution was still indispensable, and old Northerton and the butler, armed to the teeth, kept a dreary vigil till morning broke in sullenness. Chapter 15. The Morrow of the Disasters It was late when I came downstairs to learn what the night had brought forth. Miss Northerton was kindness itself, and persisted in regarding me as Lena's heroic rescuer, whereas I had really done nothing which entitled me to distinction. Our midnight ride had been only that of two people on one horse, for no molestation whatever had been offered us. Still, taking time by the forelock, I suggested that the rescuer had some claim on the lady, and finally revealed our sacred at the true psychological moment. Miss Northern said she had long looked forward to the Union, and that her husband had been quite as sagacious as herself. She was only sorry that things looked so black around us. How would all this anarchy end? It was scarcely time to think of Hyman. For aught we could tell, we might be beggared, or possibly even butchered, to make an anarchist's holiday. The story of my adventures was retold in detail, and the astonishment of my hearers at the revelations knew no bounds. They had wondered greatly at my absence, but were now of opinion that to have sailed on the air in the Attila was a privilege the historian would grudge me. I replied that the spectacle of the great massacre was so far from being a privilege that the bare memory of it horrified me. Had I known exactly what to expect, I should have accepted Hartman's offer and have been promptly landed beforehand. My narrative having come to an end, we were speculating on the outlook when a tramp of feet arrested us, and all four of us rushed simultaneously to the window. Good cheer! A regiment of volunteers was marching briskly toward the park, their bayonets flashing brightly in the sunlight. Was there a reaction? Had the forces of order rallied? Had the progress of the Attila been checked? In a very short time I was in the street, greedy for information, accosting an officer. I asked him what the was the news. He said that the Aranef had ceased dropping petroleum, that a vigorous reaction had taken place, that the conflagrations were partly checked, while the anarchists and rioters were being driven mercilessly from the streets with bullet and cold steel. Without more ado, I ran back to the, into the house and, shouting the good tidings to old Northerton, enlisted him forthwith for an expedition. Our plan of campaign was speedily agreed upon. We would make our way to Hyde Park and find out all about the destruction of last night from the crowds who would be sure to gather there. Miss Northerton and Lena protested, as was only to be expected, but very little attention, I'm afraid, was paid to them. Taking a satchel of provisions and a couple of flasks of claret with us, we left the ladies to brood over our temerity at their leisure. One thing must be added. Though it seemed improbable that chances would favor me, I stuffed into my breast pocket poor Miss Hartman's last letter. It certainly would not be my fault if her fiendish son failed to get it, and having got it, to relish it. We followed the regiment for a while till Westburn Grove was reached. The heat, smoke, and dust here were intolerable, and whole clumps of buildings were still merrily blazing. Every now and then the crack of rifles could be heard, and we knew that somewhere or other justice was being summarily administered. At this point a stranger, evidently a gentleman, stepped up and asked us if we had heard the latest. We answered that both the events of the night and early morning were for the most part unknown to us. Thereupon he stated that all through the night fires were being kindled in every direction by the Aranef. 
It had been discovered, too, that hundreds, if not thousands, of Confederates were pushing on this abominable work below, and that these, by inciting the mob to violence, had greatly assisted to swell the terrible list of catastrophes. He added that the Araneff had drawn off a while and was wheeling wildly around the park in wide circles, occasionally discharging her guns when the crowds grew dense. Meantime, order had been partially restored. The military, albeit many soldiers were suspected of complicity, had been called out. The police at first helpless had rallied, and volunteer regiments and special police corps were pouring onto the different scenes of action. Anarchists and rioters were being shot down in batches, and it was believed that all cooperation with the Araneff from below had been at last practically extirpated. Then came an announcement, which moved me to barely repressed excitement. The Araneff during the early morning had been seen to descend in the park and to deposit four men, subsequently rising to her old altitude. The police were now searching for them in all directions, and it was said that their arrest was imminent. Did you hear of the balloon attack? continued our communicative informant. No, we replied in unison, deeply interested. Well, sometime after midnight, the thought occurred to Bates, the aeronaut, that this Araneff might possibly be fought in her own element. In the grounds of the military exhibition in South Kensington was the balloon used for visitors' ascents. Providing himself with a rifle and three well-charged bombs, a terribly risky thing, no doubt, but look at the emergency, he had the silk inflated and the wind suiting, rose up steadily, meaning to get above his opponent and, if possible, shatter her with his missiles. Unfortunately, the blaze rushing up from a newly fired group of mansions revealed the daring aeronaut. It was a pretty if terrible picture, the little balloon drif drifting up towards the mighty Araneff in the glow of those blazing roofs. Did he get near enough to throw? No, poor fellow. A journalist who was below with a night glass says that he'd never had even a chance. One of the men on the deck of the Araneff pulled out a revolver and fired, and the balloon pierced through and through and once began to descend rapidly. On reaching the ground with a shock in Earl's Court Road, the bombs exploded and the car and its plucky occupant were shattered to pieces. Poor chap. A wild attempt, but rats in a hole cannot be particular, said old Northerton. Thanking our informant heartily, we moved hastily on, both eager to see something of the movements of the terrible vessel. The landing of the four men did not perplex me for long. Schwartz, as I know, had been prepared to descend. But why four in this enterprise, for which one alone had originally been told off? The solution which suggested itself to me was this. Despite the devastation he had caused, Hartman was very dissatisfied with the result. His vast outlay of material had not affected the ruin of one-fifth part of the great city, while in all probability the resources of the Attila were becoming somewhat strained. Relatively to her size, these resources were undoubtedly slender, and it was requisite, accordingly, to devise some new and less costly mode of attack. Of the lull in the work of the incendiaries, Hartman must have got wind, but not knowing the cause of it, and anxious to secure a redoubled activity below, now so indispensable to his success, he dispatched four of the crew to fan their energies into fury. That their efforts would be futile was now certain enough. The problematical part of the affair was the supposition that they would ever get back to their baffled leader at all. Probably they were now bitterly regretting their temerity, if, indeed, they had not been shot against the wall by the furious restorers of order. Just then, a squad of soldiers passing by escorting some incendiaries whose faces filthy with grime and brutal to a degree filled us with loathing and anger. They were to be shot in the neighboring mews, and, if the accounts we heard were reliable, richly deserved their fate. What kicks their captors were giving them? The faces seemed unfamiliar to me, all alike of a low grade of ruffianism such as every great city breeds but which never declares its strength till the day of weakness arrives. But suddenly one of the wretches, who lagged somewhat behind the rest, received a sharp cuff from a soldier, and in the volley of curses that followed, I recognized a well-known and long-detested voice. It was that of Michael Schwartz, who, bruised, handcuffed, befouled with grime and dirt, was being driven like a bullock to a slaughterhouse. 
How savage a despair must have goaded him in the last few minutes of his dark and damnable life. I turned away with a shudder, glad, however, to think that this fiend, at least, was no longer to cumber the ground. Might the three other men of his party meet with the same luck. After half an hour's walk, we found ourselves in Hyde Park. Our informant had not misled us. High above the sward that circled the Attila, her graceful flight in vast bulk, her silvery gray sides and projecting aeroplane, her long ruddy flag streaming over the screw blades, her ram-like horned bow, and above all, now her hideous repute, rendering her a weirdly conspicuous object. Old Mr. Northerton's face was a picture. The look he bent on me was one of unconcealed and almost childish wonder at the Aranef and of deep respect for his would-be son-in-law who had actually trodden its deck. He seemed fascinated by the wondrous air vessel, and lamented loudly that his conception should have lodged in so unworthy and fiendish a mind. Think what a good man might have effected for his kind, for their creature comforts and commerce, for the cause of civilization, science, and culture. A fleet of such ships would render England monarch of the nations, and arm her with power to sweep away hordes of monstrous iniquities. War would be finally stamped out, and universal arbitration substituted for it. Until France or Russia began to launch similar fleets, I added, for it seemed clear enough that nations who could fight with armies and ironclads would have no insuperable prejudice against fighting with airships. If only one nation possessed these aeronefs, she would doubtless silence the rest, but in actual practice inventions of this character cannot be permanently kept secret. There were few persons in the park, for the dread of the aeronef was universal. Her guns dexterously, dexterously singled out crowds, hence no one wished to recruit them, and any symptom of it, their formation in the neighborhood speedily corrected itself. Outside the railings, indeed, there were plenty of onlookers, but there, there the military patrolled the streets, and bodies of mounted police vigorously seconded their efforts. I was told by a bystander that severe fighting was going on in East London, but that nothing serious of late was reported from the West End. This sounded all very well, but what if the Attila was once more to reopen fire? How about the restoration of order then? Would regiments clear the streets under bomb fire? Would police hunt down incendiaries in the teeth of petroleum showers? The man admitted that in that case chaos must follow, but nevertheless he reckoned the vessel was emptied. She can't hold much more stuff at any rate. The reed was unfortunately slender, as he had certainly caused to discover. I was gazing at the stray onlookers around us when a strange group caught my eye. Two men had just entered the park, followed by a third, with his hat pulled well forward over his brow. The two men in advance were talking excitedly and pointing at, at intervals to the aeronef. Something in their faces riveted my attention, and as they came near, I recognized Norris among them. I and the villainous Thomas was bringing up the rear. What were they doing here at such an hour? My notion was that their mission had completely failed, and that their associates were being shot down, and that they were now seeking a haven from danger in the Attila. But was it possible that they could... And be embarked in the broad light of day in the face of crowd, police, and military? Were they even expected back so early from the fulfillment of their task? Whatever the explanation might be, one thing was clear. The chance for my letter had come. As Norris passed me, I looked him full in the face. He grew pale as death, and I saw him feel spasmodically for his revolver. Evidently, he thought that I should denounce him, and was prepared to die biting. Of course, no semblance of such a plan had crossed my mind. Hateful to me as these were these anarchists, they had treated me well on the Attila, and with them I had once amicably broken salt. Honor shielded even the enemies of the human race from such a scurvy return. Brushing past Norris, I whispered, A letter for the captain, stuffing it dexterously into his hand at the same time. This action passed wholly unnoticed, even by Norris's companions, while the worthy ex-commissioner was far too well absorbed in the aeronef to mark my brief departure from his side. Norris himself passed on hurriedly, directing his steps to the central position of the park. I watched the three anarchists till they reached an almost deserted spot, about 400 yards off, and then it became evident that they were bent on signaling to the Attila. 
for aught I knew Hartman in his conning tower was even now sweeping the sword with his powerful field glass. I saw Norris produce something out of the breast of his coat, and fuddle eagerly about it with his companions. The anarchist then laid down on the grass, and seemed to be awaiting some answer. It was some time, however, before I seized the true rendering of their conduct, and but for a stray yellow gleam showing up between Norris and one of the others, I should not have seized it at all. The device adopted was simple. The gallant three were evidently being waited and watched for. To ensure notice, they had agreed to exhibit a large yellow flag, and for security's sake, they had unrolled this at full length on the grass, lying around at the same time as so as to screen it from observation. The problem remaining over was how the Attila was to get them safely on board. She was perhaps 250 feet above them at the moment, and the difficulty in such a situation seemed almost insuperable. Suddenly a cry from Mr. Norrington arrested me. The Araneff was curving swiftly in and out so as to trace a sort of descending spiral. Then when nearly over the flag she stopped almost dead and seemed to be falling rapidly. It's falling! It's falling! yelled Mr. Norrington. But I knew better. That fall was adjusted by the sand levers. The Attila sank slowly to the ground. The police, military, and spectators outside and inside the railing rushed forward to the scene with loud cries of exultation. All were seized with the desire to be in at the death, to vent their rage on the foe who now seemed to have lost his might. It was with the greatest trouble that I held Mr. Northerton back. He was carried away by the sight of the thousands streaming into the park, converging in masses on the fallen monster. They were now close up. Several rifle cracks told that the soldiers on the, to the fore were already hotly engaged, or perhaps driving to storm the hull. And then came a dread disenchantment. Chapter 16 The Last of the Attila As the rebel closed on the Araneff, she gave a huge heave, her bow singing over her assailants like a tilted arm of a seesaw. Next, the stern cleared the turf, and the Colossus rose majestically, rolling the while like some ship riding at anchor. The gnats who clung to her bottom in gallery dropped off confusedly, and the whole multitude in her neighborhood seemed bewildered with surprise and terror. Suddenly, the Attila was enveloped in flame and smoke, the roar of her big pieces mingling with the cracks of the machine guns, and the rifle fire that spirited from the loopholes in her armor. Lanes were cut into the crowd in all directions, and a veritable hail of bullets whistled past the spot where we stood, many even claiming their victims around us. Discretion, not valor, was our choice. We made wildly for the outlets toward which a screaming mob rushed behind us, and, once through them, made our way rapidly down the street. Having run some few hundred yards, we stopped, and saw with dismay how narrow had been our escape. The Attila was still rising majestically with her machine and quick-firing guns playing on the multitude as a hose plays on flames. The wretched victims were fighting for the blocked gates and outlets like creatures possessed. Bloody gaps opened and shut in their midst, and heaps of butchered and trampled bodies tripped up the frantic survivors in batches as they ran. The din was simply unearthly, the picture as a whole indescribable, not being set off by two or three easily detachable features, but so completely appalling in its details as to baffle the deftest pen, and lingers still vividly in my memory. The cloudy pall above, the still smoking and ruined houses opposite the park, the heaving crowd with its multitudinous detail of slaughter, suffocation, and writhings, the smoke-clad hull of the Attila as it rose in angry majesty, its top peering like the Matterhorn through the clouds, these were fraught with a fascination that held us enthralled. The sight would have moved the pity of a Borgia, and glutted to the full the morbid aestheticism of a Nero. But the massacre was as short as it was swift. When the Araneff had reached the height of 150 feet, she suddenly ceased firing, and began once more to circle with albatross-like grace in the path she had previously favored. What was the motive for this strange suspension of hostilities? Possibly her munitions were failing, and the thought of departure with his grim project unaccomplished had forced Hartman to husband his resources and await some novel opportunities for mischief at night. His state of mind, however, must have been even at that moment unenviable. 
that he had not yet received the fatal letter might or might not be the case, but quite apart from this thunderbolt he had a gloomy prospect to brood over. The failure of his artillery and petroleum to effect the ruin he had contemplated was, in itself, from his standpoint, a catastrophe, while the expectation of the anarchist rising below had rendered his very security dubious. Of the success or defeat of the continental anarchists we had as yet heard nothing, owing to the disorganization of the usual channels of information, but seeing that the attack in London had failed, it was highly probable that it had withered away utterly in places where the, there was no Attila to back it. In this event, the situation of Hartman would be precarious. Defiant of human effort as seemed the Aranef, it was, nevertheless, to a large extent dependent on the maintenance of its communications with society, communications which had hitherto been kept up with the various continental anarchist groups. Coals, provisions, gas, munitions of all sort had to be allowed for, but in the debacle of modern anarchism and complete exposure of its secrets, things might come to such a pass that the Attila would be altogether without a basis, de deprived of which her death from inanition was merely a question of time. It was Here was a fine opportunity for the governments, an opportunity which could not well have escaped the acute vision of Hartman. Ah, uh, well, we should see. At this stage, my speculations were cut short by a rush of fugitives down the street, and unable to breast the torrent, we took the wisest course and flowed with it. Some way further on, however, the panic began to ease down, then slowly died away, until many stopped outright to gaze on the destroyer which sailed so contemptuously above them. Some even found their way back to the park, anxious to do what they could for the hundreds of wounded and dying wretches who littered the sward for an area of at least 300 square yards, and whose cries would have shocked the denizens of Malibulge. We were about to do the same when the road was summarily cleared by police, and all further access to the scene prohibited. We were protesting against this usage when a voice was heard, apparently from one of the rooms of the few uninjured houses opposite. Hey! Here! Is that you, Northington? Come in, man! Come in! I looked and I saw leaning from the window an elderly gentleman whom I recognized as a frequent visitor at Colsartan Terrace. We accepted forthwith this very seasonable invitation, and mounting the steps were ushered into a cozy drawing room where we found the whole family assembled. The old gen gentleman, whose name was Wingate, could talk of nothing, of course, but one the one absorbing subject, the Attila and her depredations. An attentive circle surrounded us as we recounted the story of the last shameful massacre. The ship, or whatever you call it, seems quiet again, observed our host. A calm before the storm, I am afraid. I dread to think what this night may have in store for us. And I too. My idea of the respite is simply this. They are waiting till darkness comes on, and will take merciless advantage of the facilities offers for the creation of panics and confusion. I hear, continued Mr. Wingate, that the fires are being got under control, but that Westminster, Southwark, Brompton, Kensington, the city, and adjoining districts are no better than smoking ruins. Heaven shield us from this monster! By the way, I put in, have you a good glass here? There goes the destroyer almost within hail. Yes, there's a capital one upstairs which used to do duty at sea when I was a yachtman. Come upstairs and try it. I followed him in out of the room, leaving my future father-in-law with the ladies. Mr. Wingate took me to the bedroom immediately above, and drawing a leather case from the shelf, produced a capital instrument. He had a long look first, but complained of the difficulty of following the movements of the Aranif. He then handed it to me to report, if better possible, results. Lifting the window, I lay back on the floor against the side of the bed, and steadying the barrel at, at the edge of the dressing table, managed to obtain an excellent view. Do you see anything? Yes, she's turning our way. Ah, uh, that's better. How delicate this glass is. I then described to him the prominent parts of the Attila more or less in detail. Is the deck crowded? No, there's several men around the battery near the citadel, but the rest of the deck is deserted. Here, try again. The view is now splendid. The glass once more changed hands. What a sight! ejaculated my companion, having succeeded in spotting the Aranef. Why, I can see the whole thing just as if it was only across the road, just as you described it too. By the way, there is a solitary individual pacing the foredeck frantically. 
He seems terribly excited about something. More nif mischief, doubtless. Describe him! I cried eagerly. Easier said than done! He had said a moment before that the whole thing was as clear as if it was only across the road. But he seems very tall, rather dark, with a thick black beard, and he holds some letter in his hand which he kisses and then brandishes fiercely. Hartman, by all that's holy! Vindictively, I bethought me of the letter and the miserable reports of failure which Norris and his men must have delivered. I should say he's the captain or some other boss in authority, for see a gunner comes up and salutes him. Ah, uh, he must be angry. He dismisses the man fiercely and seems once more to devour the letter. Go on! Go on! He steps to the railing and shakes his fist at the city below. Now he seems to be deliberating, for he remains perfectly still, looking every now and then with the letter or document. How beside himself with anger he seems. He dashes his fist at the railing. Now he strides across the deck and stalks through the surprised gunners to the citadel. I feel sure something terrible is brewing. Ha! Captain of the Attila, smart under the lash of Nemesis, matricide and murder writhe. You felt not for the thousand sacrifice for a theory. Feel now for the report of your plans wrecked beyond hope of repair. Feel, too, for a loved mother, the sole creature you ever cared for, but whom your reckless and futile savagery has immolated. Hater of your race, terrible indeed has been your penalty. Hello! He comes up again with a revolver in each hand. He closes the gate of the outer wall of the citadel and seems to harangue the crew. Is he mad or what? He fires one of the revolvers, and a man drops. A mutiny! A mutiny! I see the men rushing up like fanatics. They climb the wall. He's shooting the wall. Ha! He rushes into the citadel and closes the inner door sharply. They try to follow him, but cannot. After a long pause, stay. They've broken the doors open and rush. A flash that beggared the levin bolt. A crash shattering the window panes and deadening the air. A shock hurling us both on our backs broke the utterance then thundered down a shower of massive fragments, fragments of the vast ship whose decks I had once trodden. Hartman, dismayed with the failure of his plans and rendered desperate by the letter, had blown up the Attila. The news of his failure and the message of a dying woman had done what human hatred was too impotent to even hope for. But little more remains to be said. You are conversant with the story of the next few days. You know also how order was once more completely re-established, how the wreckage of that fell 24 hours was slowly replaced by modern buildings, how gradually the empire recovered from the shock, and how dominant henceforth great became the great problems of labor. My own connection with these latter was not destined to endure. After my marriage with Lena, my interests took a different turn. Travel and literary studies left no room for the surlier duties of the demagogue. Writing from this quiet German retreat, I can only hope that my brief narrative will prove of some interest to you. It has not been my aim to write history. I have sought to throw light only on one of its more romantic corners, and if I have succeeded in doing so, the whole purpose of my efforts will have been accomplished. The End A couple quick notes. Um, I was a little bit confused uh, at the at the beginning of chapter 15 uh, there was a line it was scarcely a time to think of hymen and uh, so I looked it up and it turns out that hymen um, also ca called hymenaios uh, was a, a Roman god of marriage um, another thing I want to note is uh, some of the conversations in, in that chapter um, really make me think of uh, the this this airship as being like a nuclear bomb. There's a discussion of if England had had this, then it could have conquered other nations and done away with the iniquities of other nations. But then the uh, the answer to that is that no one could keep this technology secret and that other nations would, would gain it too. And then they'd all be on equal footing. Um, uh, so, so I mean, if you if you substitute a uh, nuclear bomb for, uh, for, for airship, then 
then this could be a story of what if a you know what if a bad guy was the first person to develop a nuclear bomb. I should also mention that uh, anarchism is, is was presented in this book uh, as as an attempt to destroy civilization by destroying c cities and killing lots of people and and pretty much paralyze uh, civilization is is not really consistent with anarchism as it was believed in back then and and as it's believed in today uh, you know of course there's with any belief system there might be some uh, very extreme adherents who who are willing to go to very extreme lengths but um, and there you know and there have been actual bomb throwing anarchists but for the most part there were bomb throwing anarchists trying to uh, you know trying to kill government officials or destroy government buildings and um, you know trying to a little more targeted of an attack on on the society that they were or the the system that they were trying to break down than just you know killing loads and loads of people and destroying societies and a lot of anarchists uh then and now believe in a non-violent overthrowing of of government and and um, capitalist systems so uh the use of anarchists is the the bad guy uh in this story um you know, it was, it was a good for good for the plot, but not necessarily reflective of of anarchism as a belief in in the period that was uh, the story was written.